Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family today. Thanks for joining us. We're continuing our mini-series on the second generation. In other words, we're, we're talking about your kids, maybe you too. There's a challenge that is not new. It's been around for literally centuries. How do you keep the second generation of believers faithful to following God's ways? I gave you a scripture, but it's worth just visiting real quickly again. Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt in the Old Testament, great miracles, great provision by God. And then Moses had an assistant by the name of Joshua, a very faithful man before God. And then we read in Joshua 24 that Joshua dies and they buried him. And it says that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the leaders that outlived Joshua. Okay, that sounds good. But then we find some bad news when we turn the page from the book of Joshua to the book of Judges, and we find in Judges 2.10, there arose another generation after them. In other words, completely different. They didn't continue the path that Joshua and the leaders that knew Joshua had established, but it says they didn't know the Lord, and they forsook the God of Israel and served idols, and obviously the whole nation got into big trouble. So what we're trying to do in this series is recognize that there is a challenge with the second generation. Where do those challenges come from, and then how to deal with them? Now, this one might sound a little odd to those who've never thought through this, but there is a particular second-generation challenge that arises from infant baptism. And somebody's like rolling their eyes saying, what are you talking about? Well, if you haven't ever been a Protestant like I have been, um, I lived through this, in fact. I was baptized as a baby by my parents, I had an adult, young adult conversion experience and basically rejected my infant baptism, was rebaptized in the Pacific Ocean during the Jesus movement, and then I studied this issue uh, quite a bit further while I was in seminary and had to call my mother. My dad had passed away by this time and had to apologize and told her that, nope, what she and dad had done was the correct way, infant baptism. But let me ask you, why are there so many Baptist churches? The Baptist churches are named Baptist churches because of their view of baptism. It's believers only baptism. And it's agreed by all parties that infants and young babies cannot believe. And so if you believe in believers only baptism, you don't believe in infant baptism. Now, one of the reasons that fuels the drive for believers-only baptism is that challenge of the second generation of those who are baptized as infants rather than those who are baptized as converts. Now, first thing I'm going to do, 
<laughs> I'm saying there's a challenge arising from infant baptism. There's nothing wrong with infant baptism. It's God's way, and I'd like to just zero in on that. But you might be just interested in how I came to make full circle going from infant baptism to believers-only baptism and back to infant baptism. Well, it started while I was in seminary, and my seminary was fairly rigorous in its uh, amount of homework and reading. It, it was it was to the point of pain. And yet during the same time, my wife Karen was pregnant with our first child, and I had come to the point of understanding that there were some men in the history of the church that I greatly respected that believed in infant baptism. And it caused me on a very personal level as a man about to become a new dad, I wanted to know what the right thing was to do. So in the midst of a rather demanding academic schedule, I was spending all kinds of time reading a book pro-believers-only baptism, then reading another book, pro-infant baptism. And it's amazing how you can kind of flip back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until finally somebody, and I think it was in a book writing against infant baptism, but it gave me the right question. Sometimes you get the right question, you get the right answer. And the question was this, how much of the Bible do you use to answer the baptism question? If you're believing in, like a Baptist, a believers-only baptism, and not just Baptist denominations, there's a whole host of Protestants who believe in believers-only baptism. They might say, well, the New Testament, and why the New Testament? Well, the New Testament really doesn't say anything about what you do with the children of believers one way or another explicitly, but there's some very dramatic I think, neon sign blinking indications in the New Testament, but the New Testament doesn't say. But the other way to look at it is to say, no, you use the whole Bible to answer the question. And they'll kind of look at you a little funny, but that was the key for me, because once I got that question, do you use the whole Bible? Well, of course, I love the whole Bible. Why wouldn't I use the whole Bible? And then instantly, Colossians chapter 2 came to mind. Colossians 2, St. Paul writing to Christians in the early apostolic church said this, in whom you also are circumcised. He's writing to Christians, circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, there's no circumcision in the new covenant. What is it talking about? Next verse, buried with him in baptism, wherein you are also raised with him through faith. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him and has forgiven all your trespasses. What is St. Paul saying? He's writing to the Colossian Christians saying, your baptism is like Old Testament circumcision. He's comparing the two, but he's not saying it's identical because it's a circumcision made without hands. It's the circumcision of Christ, and he's referring to baptism, but he's comparing 
baptism and circumcision. Well, why is he doing that? It, this would have been very common to do when you realize that circumcision was that covenant sign that was foreshadowing the greater covenant sign in the new covenant. There's all kinds of signs in the Old Testament pointing forward to Christ and the new covenant. Circumcision pointed to the New Testament reality of baptism. So, okay, we're dealing with the whole Bible. We realize that circumcision was foreshadowing baptism and Basically, God had set a precedent in the Old Testament, and it was this. If you were a new person coming into covenant with God for the first time, just say like Abraham, when he was first brought into covenant with God, he would have been circumcised as an adult. But then the question is, what do you do with the children of adults in the covenant? Okay, do you treat the children like Abraham was, or do you treat them differently? God was very explicit that the children of those in the covenant, the children of the believers, were to be circumcised on the eighth day. Okay, so there's no question that the, all the male children born to members of the covenant community would be receiving the covenant sign at eight days old. Now, remember, St. Paul's letter to the Colossians says there's a continuity and a change between the Testaments. The continuity, there's a sign of membership within the community, circumcision in the old, baptism in the new, but there's a discontinuity, a change, because baptism is different and so much greater. Now, let me just share with you, to me, the most fascinating passage from the early church fathers regarding the whole baptism of infants question, and this is from the writings of St. Cyprian, writing in A.D. 251. And they wrote him a question saying, as what pertains to the case of infants— you said that they ought not to be baptized within the second or third day after their birth, that the old law of circumcision must be taken into consideration, and that you did not think that one should be baptized within the eighth day after his birth. What in the world did this question come from? And St. Cyprian says, our council said it seemed far otherwise that no one agreed to the course that you should be taken. Rather, we all judge that the mercy and grace of God ought to be denied to no man. First of all, the practice of baptizing an infant within two or three days of birth, obviously they thought this was pretty important. This isn't something you put off for eight or 12 months. This is critical. This is important. This is a command of God to do. But the question that arose is that now we're in the new covenant. Do we have to wait to until the child is eight days old, like circumcision in the old, because they realize there's a connection between baptism and circumcision, or can we go ahead and do it at the second or third day? And the church council, St. Cyprian wrote, nope, you can do it at any time. That regulation about circumcision does not hold in the new. They can be baptized at any time. 
but that question would never have come to a church council if the practice of baptizing infants wasn't understood as a new covenant fulfillment of the old. I hope you get that because it's pretty strong. Now, I'm going to tell you about a very commonly misused passage of the Bible. And if you have ever heard an evangelist on TV, particularly during a crusade, uh, you go to, um, I don't know, you hear a Protestant uh, evangelist make a proclamation of uh, trying to get people saved, the verse that they will use so frequently comes from Acts 16 and verse 31. And if you, many of you, if you're driving, don't, don't stop or anything, but if you have a Bible, this is a good one to kind of highlight or make a little note by. But Acts 16, 31 is a answer to a question. Paul and Silas were in jail the jailer was watching them. They were actually in stocks, and there was a big earthquake, and they were loosed from their stocks. And the jailer comes in terrified, kneeling down before them, and he says, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And their answer, Acts 16, 31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. This is, I can't tell you, and I probably have been guilty of this myself several times when I was an evangelical pastor and evangelist, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will hear this over and over and over. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And as a Catholic, or even as a Protestant who believes in infant baptism, there's many Protestants that do, you need to simply ask a question. Why did you only cite the first half of verse 31? You go back in context, Acts 16, the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? St. Paul says in verse 31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and thy house. Why is that dropped off? Because the baptistic view of baptism relates to the whole notion of the covenant community. Are we as isolated individuals, or does God have some kind of plan in both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant to keep families together, and is his plan to work salvation through families or simply isolated individuals? So, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, you and your house. Next, the next verse, and they spoke unto him the word of God and to all that were in his house, okay? And then he took them that hour and washed their stripes. And that man, the jailer, was baptized, he and all of his. The baptism went to the whole family. And the next verse, verse 34, he brought him into his house. He set meat before them and rejoiced, the jailer did, believing in God with all his house. This is the normal way that Jesus seeks to work. 
and the covenant wants to work through families. This is so basic. In the Old Testament, when God provided the Passover lamb, it was for one lamb per house. And if anybody was by themselves, you'd invite them in because God's norm was to work through families, not isolated individuals. And that's why you have at least childhood baptism right there in Acts 16. And it's so obvious that hundreds, if not thousands of times this year, Protestant pastors and evangelists who are Baptistic, don't believe in infant baptism, will be quoting half of a verse in Acts 16, 31, because it's, it's that obvious, and it doesn't fit into the idea that it's only an individual believing that it can't include the children of believers. All right, so that's, that's our, our point, and I, I just mentioned another verse from the Old Testament that you probably never heard a Bible teaching on, never heard a homily on, never heard a sermon on, never heard a broadcast on, but it does highlight the importance of the covenant sign for all those in a house under believing parents, okay? We're going to go to Exodus chapter 4, and we're going to talk about Moses. Moses, the man called by God at one of the most important moments in the entire history of the world to redeem the nation Israel, to bring them out as a nation from slavery in Egypt, okay? So God calls Moses, and he's sending him back to Egypt. This is spiritual warfare to the nth degree, and we read this in Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 24. It says, And it came to pass by the way in the inn, on his way back to accomplish the Exodus, that the Lord met him, met Moses, and sought to kill him. Have you ever heard that? God was about to kill Moses because he had done something wrong. And what was that? Then Zephora, his wife, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son, circumcised him, and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. And that was the end of God about to kill Moses. But he was in no shape to do spiritual warfare with Moses when he was in stark violation of God's command. This isn't a nice add-on to Judaism or Christianity. The sign of the covenant, if you're coming in from the cold, from unbelief to belief, yes, as an adult, you are circumcised in the old, you're baptized in the new. But once you're in the covenant and you have children, God wants you to baptize them. And this is not a little deal. This was such a serious deal that God almost took Moses' life if it wasn't for his wife. So this is important stuff. Now, why do so many, I would say, well-intentioned Protestants have a beef with infant baptism. I don't know if you know what it is, but it's the second generation problem. 
and it's a real problem. I don't fault them for seeing the problem. Their beef is that baptism for the second generation, infant baptism, will fill up churches with thousands of anemic Christians or even worse, non-believing pew-sitters, and that they don't have faith because baptism of an infant doesn't require the faith of the infant, does of the parents, okay? So if the infants can't believe, they just don't want this idea of thousands of people of non-believing pew-sitters. Now, the answer to all of this, and the reason I spend time on infant baptism because you can't overcome the problem of the second generation with infant baptism by getting rid of infant baptism. And I think particularly Exodus 4, this account with Moses, which you probably never heard before until today, this is really serious stuff. And the same thing with circumcision applies to baptism. So we're not going to get rid of baptism, so what do we do? I have the perfect answer. I really do. And it's not mine. This is something I dreamed up. This is from St. John Paul II, and it's the solution he offers for the second generation of children baptized in infancy. I am going to read you a paragraph from St. John Paul II, and if you're a parent, listen carefully, because a lot of good Catholic parents are mystified why they can put their children through 12 years of Catholic school or catechism classes or confirmation classes, and it just doesn't seem to take. You're wondering why. Listen. Catechetical practice must allow for the fact that the initial evangelization has not taken place. A certain number of children baptized in infancy, and I got to just interrupt myself here just a second. He's so polite. (laughs) Okay, a certain number of children, I'll just put millions of children, baptized in infancy come for catechesis in the parish without receiving any other initiation into the faith. In other words, there's just kind of like this assembly line, and there's never a hiccup or anything. You're baptizing infants, just keep going. But he says, but they're still without any explicit personal attachment to Jesus Christ. They only have the capacity to believe placed within them by baptism and the presence of the Holy Spirit. This means that catechesis must often concern itself not only with nourishing and teaching the faith, but also with arousing it unceasingly with the help of grace, with opening the heart, with converting and preparing total adherence to Jesus Christ on those who are still on the threshold of faith. This concern will decide the tone, the language, and the method of catechesis. That's from St. John Paul II, Catechesis in Our Time. I can't tell you how important this is. And you know what? If I didn't tell you where this came from, you would think, well, this is from some Baptist pastor who wants everybody to believe. This is St. John Paul II who wants everybody to believe. And the special way we care for the children baptized in infancy, the second generation. And my suggestion 
again, this is following the steps of St. John Paul II, because what did he do with young people? He took them up to the mountains. He took them skiing, took them hiking, and he took them canoeing. Okay, I call these activation strategies. Um, It's not just a classroom, but a retreat or a camp. Just bottom line, a confirmation game night sleep in with a faith-oriented pep talk, little more than a joke. It is not adequate for somebody on the threshold of adult life to have this total adherence to Jesus Christ and opening of the heart. There needs to be a specific activation strategy, and it may not come just overnight, but your staff has to have the encounter themselves in order to pass it on. Remember, that's what Pope Benedict XVI said. And I'll tell you just kind of a secret what we were doing with St. Joseph's Covenant Keepers and Catholic Fathers, because some men made it into adulthood, made it into the role of a husband and father, and never had the, the, the call. And the changed lives wasn't just nice things we said about fatherhood, but was a challenge for this personal adherence to Jesus Christ. And perhaps we could have, I'm calling it the Faith Activation Apostolate. Think of the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, just the Faith Activation Apostolate. And there may even be an apostolate that helps parishes do this type of thing for those in confirmation and catechism classes, or even those who are in Catholic colleges and schools. The Christian faith is not only believing a certain things are true, this is according to Pope Benedict XVI, but above all, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is an encounter with the Son of God that gives new energy to the whole of our existence. And so here you have two sterling popes telling you explicitly how to do this. And we just don't assume that because a child is baptized in infancy, we can just kind of just put them on a conveyor belt and expect them to come out a faithful disciple of Jesus. They have to be challenged and brought to that place. Their hearts have to be touched and opened. And what a wonderful apostolate for those listening to this broadcast and wondering, what do I do with my life? I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 395 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to learn more about Catholic family life.